production. Do you want 2023 to be the year you bring your dreams and desires into reality? As you may know, manifestation has been a big part of my practice for a long time now, and through my research and study, I have developed a manifestation course just for you. This course is broken up into six immersive audio modules with printable worksheets. I cover topics like unlocking your emotions so you can receive what you truly desire, understanding the quantum field and how to connect to it, letting go of control and resistance to set manifestation into motion, and embracing and embodying gratitude in order to bring your dreams and desires into reality. This course covers all my teachings and I feel so honoured to be able to share them with you. Manifest Your Greatness is available for purchase at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. When it comes to spontaneous healing, scepticism abounds. Doctors are taught that miraculous recoveries are flukes and as a result they don't study those cases or take them into account when treating patients. My guest of this hour is Dr Jeffrey Rediger, who joins me on A Life of Greatness for a second time. He has spent over 15 years studying spontaneous healing, pioneering the use of scientific tools to investigate recoveries from incurable illnesses such as brain and pancreatic cancer and many other so-called terminal diseases. Jeffrey teaches us about what's been happening in our bodies and our brains and how both of those relationships are intertwined, how trauma and not living authentically are fueling mental and physical disease. In this heartfelt conversation, we discuss what we can do to course-correct our minds and bodies, the commonalities found in spontaneous recovery, and the power of our mind to heal our body and show us the keys to good health. It's my belief and conviction that most of our hospitals and clinics are full of people who have not been taught how to honor the dignity and value and goodness of what they bring into the world in a way that can help them feel good about taking up space in the world and letting themselves shine in a way that really works and is a a great presence in the world. It's just easier to believe the bad stuff. It's easier to feel invisible or like there's something wrong or not good enough with who we are. The people I studied worked on healing those beliefs and they began to see the messages that their bodies were giving as a message along those lines. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Jeffrey Rediger is the author of Cured, The Power of Our Immune System and the Mind-Body Connection. In its essence, this conversation highlights the common denominators of people who have beaten the odds. The vital role that nutrition plays in boosting our immunity and fighting off disease and how stress, trauma and identity affect our physical health. My hope is that our conversation shows you that a negative diagnosis is not always fatal and with some inner work, 
healing is possible. Jeffrey, welcome back to A Life of Greatness for the second time. You have spent over two decades studying what in medical terms we call spontaneous remissions. Obviously, we did chat about your history before, but I want to know what interests you about this work. Well, there's a few things. This has been a personal and a professional journey for me. From a very young age, I was trying to reconcile worldviews that are not very compatible. My father came out of the Amish tradition, which in the United States is an extreme fundamentalist sect, really. My father grew up not using cars. His father was a blacksmith for the Amish tradition. No access to things like TV or radio or even store-bought clothing. My parents moved out of the Amish community when I was two years old, but they left outwardly more than inwardly. And so I went to public school during the day and was exposed to science and literature and math, all these normal subjects. But my parents were very suspicious of those and thought the Bible is sufficient for all knowledge. From a young age, I was trying to figure out how to reconcile these incompatible worldviews. That ended up taking me into college and then seminary, med school, uh, once I became convinced that evolution and science are not just tools of the devil, and then into residency at Harvard, finishing residency, um, an oncology nurse at Mass General here in Boston came to me and asked for help explaining to her son that she had been diagnosed with cancer of the pancreas, which is normally one of the worst cancers you can get. It's a devastating diagnosis. People usually die with a short, painful, brutal end. Uh, there's no good treatments unless it's caught very early, and it's not caught early usually because um, it's usually um, too advanced for surgery by the time people are aware that they have it. So I helped her explain uh, to her son the pancreatic cancer that she was facing. She took off for a healing center, began calling me saying that she was getting better, she was eating steak and salad again and had a lot more energy. She could walk again, all these things, and wanted to know if I would look into it. I said no. I didn't think it was likely to be anything outside of uh, what could be explained by traditional science. But she then began having people call me from around the country and elsewhere saying that they had experienced these amazing healings. Did I want to hear their stories? I continued to say no for a while, but the long and short of it is I did begin to look into this. And this was a personal journey as well, a continuation of the effort to uh, sort out what's true. At that point, I'd read hundreds of articles in medicine and psychology and theology. And this was an empirical theology for me to gather medical evidence of the worst and most dangerous illnesses out there and then begin figuring out how these people had survived after being told that they definitely were facing death. They're kind of the health outliers. They're the flagship of healing and well-being because they got better when no one expected that they could. So I became very interested in their journeys. It is such an interesting, interesting topic, hence why I have you on again. I want to know how does it go from being an incurable disease to being a curable disease or to being this so-called miracle, which we know it's not a miracle because it happens. And what right. I find really interesting is we always say they're outliers or there was one in a zillion. 
but I find that every time, and it doesn't matter what topic I do, when you do research, you find that there are similarities in every group. The more people you speak right. to, yes, I had that. Yes, I had that. And it's exactly what you did in your research. You went and you spoke to a lot of people and you found that there were similarities in the healing. Obviously, all the cases are different, but there right. are always those little connections that you mm-hmm. go, okay, that makes sense. They had that and then they also did that. And I'd love for you to talk a bit about what you found when you really studied these cases of incurable disease. Yeah, and this has a lot of relevance outside of just incurable disease because the things these people did at a very extreme level, kind of like at the Olympic level, has a lot of relevance for the rest of us because it's just not true what we were taught in medical school that diseases are strictly genetic and once we figure out and map the genome that we'll be able to figure out treatments. It turns out that that 85 plus percent of illnesses, including all the major killers, are actually lifestyle diseases. And that, yes, genes are part of what goes on, but genes get turned on and off by lifestyle. So we now know that it's our lifestyles, it's our nutrition, it's our relationship with stress, it's these other factors that we're going to talk about that play such a big role in most of the illnesses from which people suffer. And that includes all the major killers like heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, cancer, autoimmune illness. Uh, These are lifestyle illnesses. And what's tragic is that in Western culture, whether you're in the United States or in Australia or Europe, we treat lifestyle illnesses as if they are incurable. So if a person has diabetes or heart disease or many forms of cancer, instead of addressing the lifestyle factors that are related to this, we just give people medications that usually uh, help them tread water, but don't completely heal the illness. Now, that's a big topic and can't be uh, applied across all situations. There are certain kinds of cancer, for example, where the uh, medications are much improved relative to even 10 years ago, and they can treat um, an illness in a way that is just so much better than the chemosuppressants, the immune suppressants that we used to give that were just basically a race between killing the cancer versus killing the person. Mm. I describe in Cured about the relationship of spontaneous remission, which is what I study, to how the new treatments for cancer came out of that research. And now we actually are stimulating the immune system in very specific ways and going after the tumor or the cancer very directly instead of just giving an immune suppressant that suppresses the immune system and then is just a race between killing the person and killing the cancer. Mm. Yeah, you and I mentioned before we came on, there's some amazing, amazing drugs now that they've made in the last two years that have really helped a lot of people that have had lung cancer, breast cancer. It's actually quite incredible that not everyone has to be hooked up to a chemo machine like they used to be when you were first diagnosed with cancer. Obviously, that still does happen, but science has done some amazing, amazing things. But one thing I want to touch on that you just brought up is I can't believe that in this day and age with the knowledge that we have, that people go in with a diagnosis and the doctor doesn't talk to them about their lifestyle. 
doesn't talk to them about any traumas they've had, doesn't talk to them about anything that they're eating or the stress in their life. They just go in with the medication. I mean, everyone must know that it's a holistic view, medication plus, plus, plus. I I mean, this dumbfounds me. Yeah, it's such a huge issue. And I'm glad you raised that. It took me years of listening to these people with medical evidence for their recoveries before I finally began to get it. I began, it was like this light slowly dawned. I was just a slow learner, but I began to realize, oh, I was trained as a physician to make a diagnosis, start a medication, and that's as far as we go. We don't study how people heal. And that's almost completely true. That's beginning to change. We are at the end of the era of disease and medications, and that's a really big story. We are at the very beginning of a new era where we actually study how people heal, but we need to begin doing that at a whole different level than we are. So most physicians will make a diagnosis and start a medication, and that's that's really all we do. And the people, of course, that I study, they're not even the compliant or good patients. They're the ones that question things or the ones that cause a little bit of trouble. They fire doctors. If the doctors don't listen to what's going on for them, they'll go find a doctor and a team of um, professionals who can help them accomplish their goals and their path. So they're on a really different path and taking responsibility for their treatment in a way that is very different than the passivity of what we teach patients. Mm-hmm. So that's it's a big topic you're raising. I wonder when you did do this research, you found that there were obviously these pillars, the four pillars of health. And I wanted you to talk a bit about, to touch on all of them, but then we can go into depth about some of them. But first, tell us what the pillars, these four pillars were. Well, yes. And again, I am one of, a few people have, that have begun to map this. Um, Alyssa Rankin is a physician who started to map this new terrain. Kelly Turner is another uh, person who has begun to map this new terrain. But for the most part, this is completely unmapped. So I'm sure that the work I've done over the last 19 years is going to be revised and improved as we entice more doctors and researchers to understand the importance of using science to look into these stories and look into the medical data associated with them. Most of the time, when one hears about these amazing healings, if you begin to look into the story more deeply or ask for medical evidence, the stories begin to disappear or become more vague or difficult to substantiate. It's important to look for medical data and to really understand the nature of the illness that's being studied to enroll the different specialists that are uh, know a lot about the illness at a deep level. And so it takes a lot of work to go deep into the medical evidence and then deep into the story of the individual. It's been very slow research for me to because it takes a lot of hours with a person and going through the medical data, talking to the different specialists who are involved, and then going deep into their lives to truly understand what this is about. And so the four pillars are how I put this together, I think they do capture some important aspects of the healing. Can you tell us a bit about the four pillars? Yes. So the first pillar is nutrition, and that is a big topic. I'm sorry to say that as a physician, I was given completely upside down information about what genuine nutrition is. 
I received very little understanding or teaching of nutrition, but what I was taught was wrong. I was taught that in Western countries like the United States, Australia, and Europe, people are not suffering from malnutrition, they're suffering from overnutrition. Mm. And that's why we have problems with obesity and that sort of thing. So it's overnutrition is the problem. Well, the people that I've been studying all these years help me understand that it's not a problem of overnutrition. It's actually very severe malnutrition. A lot of the processed foods that people eat are without adequate phytonutrients or levels of nutrients, vitamins, and minerals that the body craves. So I think what happens is that the processed foods, the high sugar content, the high cheap carbohydrate content of refined flours, for example, people take in these foods, the body is desperate for more genuine nutrition. So it keeps triggering the hunger mechanism. People keep taking in more and more of these processed foods without adequate nutrition and obesity is created, but people don't have the nutrients they need. When you're in medical school, you memorize hundreds of neurochemical equations. And at crucial points in these equations, you see and you memorize the vitamins and the minerals that help those chemical reactions go through to their completion. It makes perfect sense, logically, that if you don't have enough of the vitamins and minerals, these critical bodily reactions are not going to go through to completion. So you memorize these things, you take a test, and then you go out to the nurse's station and grab the brownie or the pizza or the cookie that's there, and you just learn really bad habits, and you live with this divorce between what you're doing in your life and what you're helping patients do or not do with what you're memorizing, but not really connecting up to nutrition academically. There was a lot of people in your book that you studied, some that went vegan, vegetarian, and then no sugar was a big thing as well. Can you tell yeah. tell us about any cases in particular where they did change their diet a lot and how they made the changes? Like what changes were recommended yeah. within that pillar? You know, there's no one diet no. that fixes all this. Uh, I think what's true is that we all come from different parts of the world. We have different ancestries and our bodies need different things. And so it's important to begin paying attention to what helps us feel and be our best. And so many of the people I studied would begin meditating or going into yoga and start to notice, oh, I feel better when I eat this way, or I feel worse when I eat this kind of food. So 88% of the people that I studied did go in the direction of a vegetarian diet, either for the most part or exclusively. But not everyone did. Some people went more with a keto diet. But in spite of all the superficial differences of the diets that I saw, there were real commonalities at a deeper level. By and large, people cut down significantly on sugar. They cut down on refined flours. They began to pay attention to labels on their bread, for example. If it said wheat bread, they would look at the ingredients and for the most part, begin to realize, oh, it says it's wheat bread, but it's refined wheat flour, for example. Mm. So it's just basically sugar. Refined flour is sugar. So they began to eliminate the refined flours uh, because they are sugar. That was a really big one was to eliminate a lot of the sugar, to eliminate a lot of the refined flours. 
And then they often cut down on animal products, but not always completely. I read, I, I think in doing this research, I slowly become aware over the years of just how prominent sugar is in the Western diet, mm. for example. Um, over 100 years ago, the average person in the United States, at least, would consume four pounds of sugar a year, not a big deal. Now, in the modern era, the average Westerner and American consumes at 154 pounds of sugar a year. Our bodies were not made to take in that kind of load. And, and so and I think it's important to understand that sugar is highly inflammatory. I have not eliminated all sugar from my life, but I've cut out most of it uh, because of uh, becoming more aware of all this. Sugar is a sharp little granule that goes uh, through our our arteries and makes little cuts. And when you have a highly saturated blood volume of sugar, you're causing these little cuts in your arteries and your brilliant immune cells with all their specialized battalions come in and they start cleaning things up and sewing up those little cuts and um, making little scabs that heal, but scab on top of scab on top of scab after a while becomes what we call atherosclerosis. And that's heart disease. Mm. It's basically a sign of inflammation. So that's that's a whole different level of understanding the cause of what's going on than is reflected by taking a medicine for cholesterol, for example, or other medicines that don't even begin to address this underlying inflammation. It's interesting as well, because I think us talking today, it's not just for people that have an illness, it's a preventative mm -hmm. as well. This is a lifestyle right. thing to be well in life and not get blown over by some sort of illness. And obviously nothing is perfect, but having this information empowers you to make better choices, which is exactly what we want. I wanted to know, there was one of the pillars where you talk about sort of healing your identity, and that's obviously a big pillar and something I think that people forget about when they do get yeah. sick. And as we know through the work that I've done, speaking with Garbal Mate, who references you in his book, and a lot of other people I've spoken to about trauma, that trauma can bring on illness. It is one of the biggest things. Yeah. And healing that trauma before you get ill or whilst you're yeah. ill is something that obviously is highly recommended. And then also I'm going to define the fact that trauma doesn't need to be something big. Like it doesn't need to be that you're in a huge car accident or you were right. abused or you went through a divorce or anything like that. A trauma can be that you're ignored in your life, that you felt that you yeah. were not given enough attention by a family member, by your spouse, by a work colleague. Like we all have different traumas or different things that we hold on to. It could be that we felt that someone had betrayed us in our life. That is trauma. So yes. what I want to talk to you about is this pillar of healing our identity and why that was so important. Well, it's the most important one. There are people who didn't change their nutrition and they still heal because they so deeply healed their identity and their experience of themselves in the world. So I'm glad you bring this up because it's the most powerful and most important pillar. It's also the most difficult one to understand and do research in because it's more abstract. So I think what's true is exactly what you just said, that developmental trauma 
isn't always the shock trauma of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. It's the drip, drip, drip of daily beliefs where we don't know how to experience our value or we question our value or we feel invisible in the world. So the truth is, I think we all grow up in particular families and subcultures and cultures, and we inherit a bunch of beliefs along the way at home on the playground, with our teachers, interactions with our bosses and friends and loved ones. And we pick up a lot of beliefs. Some of these beliefs are true. Some of them are false. Some of them are conscious. Some of them are unconscious. And I think the truth is, at the end of the day, if we have a mixed set of beliefs where some are false and some are true, we will have mixed results in our body, in our mind, in our life. We were talking about Gaber Mate. I think it's Just great that you interviewed him recently. I think his work is really important. He says that if you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. Mm. I was just in a meeting today at McLean and Harvard, and we were talking about this. And it's my belief and conviction that most of our hospitals and clinics are full of people who have not been taught how to honor the dignity and value and goodness of what they bring into the world in a way that can help them feel good about taking up space in the world and letting themselves shine in a way that really works and is a a great presence in the world. It's just mm-hmm. easier to believe the bad stuff. It's easier to feel invisible or like there's something wrong or not good enough with who we are. The people I studied worked on healing those beliefs and they began to see the messages that their bodies were giving as a message along those lines. Mm. It's interesting as well, because I think a lot of it comes down to meaning and purpose, that ability to want to get up. You don't have to even have a job to have that meaning and purpose in your life, but it's that feeling fulfilled with with your everyday actions, I think is such a big thing. I'd love to know, though, if you could tell us even about one case that you studied where someone changed their life through healing their wounds. Yes. And so the question is, which story to start with? Because every (laughs) one of these stories is just so fascinating. And it's a universe into itself in many ways. You can read Cured to hear the rest of them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) And and even in Cured, there's so many things I couldn't tell about every individual story. So I always like talking about the stories when I can because there's a lot to them. I'll tell the story of Jan. So Jan was one of the first people I interviewed and was one of the reasons why I began to realize, wow, there is something to this work. I better get into this research and figure out what's going on. So Jan was a a woman who'd been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. She had been ill ever since she was, I think, age 13, she'd been ill. And so had never been well uh, since then and had been burdened by multiple problems with back pain and illnesses that were difficult to treat, Lyme disease. And then the chronic fatigue syndrome over a period of years into her 40s became so severe that it was end stage. So chronic fatigue syndrome can be a very difficult illness to live with because you just chronically feel tired and like you have no energy and you have a lot of pain and it's difficult. For her, it had gone beyond that to the point where she had lupus in her brain, in her kidneys, in her heart, in her liver. 
her body was starting to go into organ shutdown and she was thought to not have more than a few weeks to live. So she was seen at this healing center. She brought in a uh, bag of medications one day and uh, her, the, the, the healer that she was seeing said, those are not yours, you know. And she said, well, yes, they are. I paid for them. These are my medications. They're my prescriptions. And he said, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your children. And he said, basically, he spoke with her about how her children were on their own path, that they were loved by God. She had spent years carrying a heavy burden of trying to help them out of the pattern of drug abuse and self-destructive behavior and it was very complicated with their histories and history of adoption and real painful struggle but as a mother she had taken all of this on and in a very personal level and felt defective as a mother and kept chasing after trying to figure out how to fix this for them and he said they're on their own path this is not for you to fix she went back to her room and sobbed for two days and just really released a heavy burden there. She came off of all of her medications that she'd been on for many, many years, went back home to Idaho where she lived. And she looked so different at that point that she would walk down the street where she had lived for many years and people didn't even recognize her anymore. She just looked like a different person. She carried herself differently. And when you look at the photos between who she had been for so many years and who she had become, I can see why they didn't recognize her. She just didn't look for the same person. Well, uh, she went back into the same marriage and job, both of which she experienced as toxic. She became ill again, went back to this healing center, became healthy again, and began to realize that there's something about the way I relate to my husband and to my job that's very destructive for me. And and she talked about the physical abuse by her husband and being told constantly what it's like. She was called names a lot. And, and so she realized that she needed to heal her identity, like we're talking about, heal these false beliefs that that there's something defective about her. She did that. She left the marriage and the job and now has been disease-free for 30 years and wow. very happy. And she had to learn a lot about what it means to stand up for herself, what it meant to heal beliefs, to realize she's not defective, that there's something important and good, whole and complete that she brings into the world, and to build a foundation on that. And that's the kind of story I've seen over and over and over again. When you help a person get a life that honors the value and dignity they bring in the world, that learns how to give and receive love, that finds a purpose, like you mentioned, it's sometimes astonishing what can happen. And we can't predict in all cases that this is going to heal a physical illness, but it certainly will heal a life. And sometimes it heals the illness as well. And I remember you mentioned that a lot of the time, the people that you saw that were cured or healed had this connection to the divine, a source beyond themselves. Yes. And that's a big topic, right? Because religion can help and hurt. Um, I have become convinced that, that 
religious structures that teach people that they're not good enough are sometimes part of the problem. Religious systems that seek to control people or to exploit them for purposes of financial contribution or whatever can be a problem. But the truth is, there is something behind this world that we can see and touch that's very real and very benevolent, I think. And and the people that I studied often experienced something about that dimension that's ineffable and difficult to know how to talk about, but real, it played a role in helping them feel their value in a way that I think is we need to understand better. I think the truth is there's something in all of us that doesn't rest until it experiences unconditional love in some way. I think our human relationships are uh, fraught and sometimes aren't as unconditional. We don't know how to do that very well as human beings yet. But I think that when a person can have an experience that moves in the direction of unconditional love for oneself, that plays a big role sometimes in what becomes possible. Mm. It always comes down to love. And I was talking about this with someone the other day about when they asked me about my podcast, someone here at work. And I said, if you look through the theme of the podcast, it doesn't matter who I talk to, it will always come back to love. And how that is, I feel that that is the emotion that just drives all of the beauty into existence. And as you said, if we can have that for ourselves, because giving love to others can be the easy thing to do. Yeah. But having love for ourselves, that unconditional real love, I truly do believe that it enables healing. You don't even have to be sick to have that healing as such. It's just a an internal healing that I know changed my life when I could accept myself for who I am and and sit with that feeling of love, be it in meditation or the other practices I do. It is so unbelievably powerful. Yeah, I agree. That's what it really comes down to. And how to do that in a way that we experience it in a way that doesn't bypass or spiritually bypass the real world traumas or disappointments or hurts that we have. Mm. We don't need something that sugarcoats it, but something that can walk through it with us and go to the depth of all that. That's that's a really big thing. Mm. I think something really interesting to point out too is that obviously there are a lot of people that do all these different pillars and they do the work and and they do pass on. And I'd love to know your beliefs on that because, I mean, none of us are here forever. We are going to die one day. So we were having this conversation before we started and I was telling you about this amazing Vedic astrologer I'd gone to, an Indian man, and he was telling me that the date of death is very rarely set and there are things that we can do to prolong our life if we make these good choices and we don't have to go through life being sick. And he said something nice to me. He said, you know, Sarah, you can learn through pain or you can learn through ease. It's the decisions we make. So I'd love to hear what your beliefs are. Yeah, I think you're right. We all die. And so no matter who we are, at some point, we can do the most amazing things with our health. We can be the most amazing health outlier, but we're all going to die at some point. The people I studied, 
many of them actually expected to die and they prepared for death. And that's then that path in preparing for death and finishing well in some really interesting ways became the doorway into a different life. So, for example, as a physician, I am surprised by how often when a person receives a really scary life-ending diagnosis, people will be terrified at one level, but at another level, they feel something more complex, like, wow, well, if I only have six months to live, maybe I don't have to take over the family business like dad's putting pressure on me to do. Or maybe I don't have to go to law school just because everyone thinks that that's what I should do because dad and grandpa did or mom did. And so people begin to think differently about themselves. And as they prepare to die, their values change. If a person has six months to live or 12 months to live and they begin to let go of this false identity again, this this part of themselves that's trying to please others or respond to the perceived needs of others so much and begin to live from a more authentic place. That's like the letting go of a false self and the beginnings of a rebirth as someone who has a more authentic self. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what's often shocking. So when Gabriel Mate talks about, if you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. That's another way of walking around this really big topic of a less authentic self, what it means to live a life that's not so defined by responding to the needs of others or the perceived expectations of others, and instead to live by a more authentic version of who we are. There's a woman who had breast cancer who healed from it. And I always have loved her story because she was just a sweet lady for many years, kind of very demure, very quiet, very much responding to her husband, taking care of his needs. I think he loved her, but he was pretty rough verbally. And in the context of her healing from the breast cancer, she became more saucy and irreverent and much more likely to tell you the way she really thought it was. And she just wasn't going to be this demure, quiet lady anymore. And she began to take up space in the world. I think she probably became less repressed in terms of her emotions, she got in touch with her anger. She got in touch with her desires more and stopped pleasing people so much. Yeah. And and in doing that, she liberated something in herself that I think may have played a really important place in her healing. I love that story. I think I've also seen people who are on the path to healing, they to your point, they kind of change their relationships a lot. I'm not saying that they have to divorce or things like that, but even in friendships, if they find that they're around people that they've been around for 50 years and they're like, this person is toxic. Like you said, if you fear that death, even if you might not think you're going to die, but you've had that diagnosis and you think, why am I wasting time going for coffee with someone who is not a good person? who doesn't say nice things, who gossips about people, and you really think about those people in your life that you want to surround yourself with. Because when you surround yourself with good people, you become a better person yourself. There's that saying about the company that you keep, birds of a feather flock together kind of thing. I really feel like that being your authentic self 
and doing the things that will support you for you. I think there's such an important thing for people to hear. Yes, I do too. I have started to help patients set up sometimes when I feel like they are shrinking themselves and always trying to please others instead of live an authentic life where they're willing to get people upset or pissed off at them in order to be authentic. I've called it the selfish bitch project. And and I tell them that because I think in the early stages, what feels selfish to them actually isn't. And to begin taking their authentic needs more seriously and to feel comfortable taking up space in the world, for some people, that can be a lifesaver. That's what I think. It can be an absolute lifesaver. I wonder, what is the best advice, Jeffrey, that you have ever been given? That's a really good question. Um, I think I think it would be along the lines of taking one's own needs seriously and not just trying to respond to the perceived expectations of others mm-hmm. or the needs of others. I think it's so easy to have one's life taken over by just reflexively responding to others and not putting a gap in before a person makes a decision to help somebody, to take a pause, to think about what is the reason for the next steps. Am I doing this because I think this person, I owe something to them? Or do I do this because I'm afraid that some, some, uh, I could be hurt in some way, whether this is a job related thing? Or is this really on the path of my purpose? Does my action here and the choices I'm making here reflect what I'm really on this earth to do? Is it part of my real mission and purpose? Or is it just simply responding to everyone else and sidestepping what my true responsibility on this earth is? Mm. Does that make sense? You've heard so many stories, people that have healed from brain cancer, pancreatic cancer, as you mentioned. And I think there must be something in there as well when these people go to the doctors and the doctors say, you're going to die. If a medical professional is telling you that, that's going to cause a lot of stress and if anything, make you more sick. I don't want to give false hope to people, but at the same time, I do want to give hope to people because you have done this research and people have healed. It's not always the way. There's enough research out there that, yes, a lot of people do die, but you know what? Some don't. Yeah. I think especially given that we have a medical culture where we mostly just put people on medications and we don't even ask these deeper questions like, is the body sending us a message? Is there something that's out of balance in our life that we need to address, even if it's something uncomfortable to address? Is there something in our relationships that needs to be addressed? Is there something about our beliefs, about our value or our identity that need some examination? These are deep and important questions. I understand and value the whole teaching that as doctors, we are taught to not give false hope. That's really important. We don't want to give false hope. However, it's also important that we give Ethical hope that's grounded in medical evidence. So that's a very different thing. If a person is going to find a doorway into a new life, 
a new kind of vitality, a new possibility for healing their life, then they have to have grounded ethical hope that helps them believe that such might be possible and that there might be a door where doing this could be worth the the work and the effort. No one makes a new discovery for themselves without having the hope or the faith that there might be a door there that they could find and walk through. So I do believe that ethical grounded hope rooted in genuine medical evidence is really important and has to be put in place right next to the equally true statement that it's important to not be giving false hope. Mm. Do you have a favorite prayer or mantra or saying? I think different ones at different times in my life have served me well. I think more recently, I've become more aware of mantras that help decrease the power of the inner critic, for example, that I think is toxic to the mind and the body and the deeper soul within us. So at different times in my life in recent years, I have put together statements that help me remember and increasingly experience the value that I and we all bring into the world, uh, that help me remember uh, that the the volume of the inner critic can be turned down uh, by these kinds of statements, whether we're reminding ourselves that we are unconditionally loved, that we can find a way to give unconditional love to the little boy or girl inside of us, maybe that was hurt in past relationships or past experiences when young, ways to love those younger parts of us and see them and nurture them uh, rather than continue to abandon them as happened in the past or current life. So different statements that have to be tailored to one's own psyche, that we each do bring something good and of value into the world and that we can love those parts of us that are injured. Mm. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is not necessarily one with lots of fame and fortune that can be a part of life or not be a part of life. I've been more in touch with very accomplished people over the years. And when I was on the Oprah show, for example, in 2010, that was an experience of a whole different level of wealth and success that I was around during that time and subsequent to that. And the truth is, we're all just people. We all wear these masks. We spend way too much time comparing the masks that we wear to each other and creating these false hierarchies of fear based upon our appearances, whether we're attractive or what kind of clothes we wear, what kind of car we drive, what kind of jobs we have, what kind of degrees we have. And the truth is, in my work as a psychiatrist, we all are just people. And some of the people that I work with are very famous and accomplished and rich. And some of the people I work with are homeless. And sometimes wisdom comes from the strangest of places. And the truth is, when we can see beyond the masks and just see that we all are human beings that bring value into the world and that our masks prevent us from seeing that in many ways, then we can begin to see differently and experience how badly we need everyone in this world. And also that all the suffering in the world is because we treat some people as less than. And yes. if we can find a way to begin seeing the dignity and value of everyone and 
ourselves, we can create a really different world and a really different kind of health and vitality. Jeffrey Rediger, thank you for all the wonderful work that you've done. It is just so unbelievably important and and I think so necessary for so many people to know and take in. So I am so grateful for the conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.